The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be turning to God's Word now. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have plenty in the back. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this. If you are exploring Jesus or you're new or you're a guest, those books, all that stuff is in the back for you. The Reason for God. The Reason for God is a book about um, if you have questions about God, science and faith, all that stuff, how can God create everything, that white book's for you, and then the, the bronze book, The Prodigal God, is about the nature of, what, what is the gospel? What is this all about? Those are for you to take. I want you to take them. I've already got them. I don't need them. But those are for you. But on that back table is um, a Bible if you need one. And so that is where you can join us. I think it's around page 898 or something like that for 1 Corinthians back cover about 100 pages in. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians in a little series called Good News for Bad Christians because we all struggle and God has been kind to give us the book of 1 Corinthians to help us know how to follow him in a confusing world, not only a confusing world, but also with ourselves being the primary confusion in our world. But God loves us and that's why he's given us this book. We're in chapter 8. So we're going to be looking at chapter 8. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Chapter 8, 4, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating at an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage and consider... Lord, um, what does it mean to be a people that care for the weak, that care for those among us, for ourselves who are weak in you? Would you give us a strong and sure, confident faith in Jesus to be a people who give up our rights to serve others? Since his name we pray. Amen. I have to say, this passage, um, this passage has been stirring me this last week. And it's been stirring me because 
there are a number of things in here that I feel I need to I need to dwell on more deeply, that I need to learn more thoroughly to learn what love is, uh, because this passage is strange as it is, is kind of like outside of our normal world, like we don't have like meat markets on Elm Street, right? Where there's like, hey, you know, like the local like uh, Zeus offering, here you go, like 50% off, here's your burgers for the July 4th party or anything like that. Like we don't have that. So this passage can kind of feel like, how does this apply? And yet, in the middle of this passage is something about the nature of love, about what it means to love other people, to give up our rights, to serve other people, that begins to kind of like get under my skin a little bit because, uh, you know, maybe like you, I kind of like to assert my independence and I like to assert um, this is my way and, you know, if somebody disagrees with me, I've got a little bit of a sarcastic jab about it. But um, there is something in this passage that I want to grow in and I want you to grow with me in it because this passage is not just about kind of culturally tolerance, you know, like cultural tolerance is like, you can't tell me what to do, and if you judge me, you're the problem, I'm not, right? That, that's the tolerance, like you can't infringe upon my rights or who I am, whereas what this passage is saying is there's a great deal of our lives that is oriented towards not only knowing Jesus, but having a heart shaped by Jesus to love other people. And this passage, frankly, has um, a bit of a, a bad rap in the history of the church. I don't know if you've grown up in a church where they talk about the weak and the strong a lot, or if you've heard people use this. It tends to get kind of used as like a battering ram for all of my preferences. And if, you're, and if your life choices are going to like offend me, I'm the weak one, and you've got to give up your rights to serve me and do things my way. This passage kind of tends to get used that way in a bad rap. But I think at the heart of this passage... We are looking at how Jesus wants to make us strong in him to love those who are weaker among us, right? We're going to talk through all of this passage. We're going to kind of deal with this a little bit differently than we normally do. Typically, we kind of like work through a passage and apply it as we go along. What we're going to do today is we're going to kind of look at this passage and begin to ask, who are the, who are the main characters going on? Kind of like a drama. There's a bit of like some drama going on in this passage. Who are the main characters going on? What's the problem? Then what does it teach us? Because... There is something here that I want us to get into the drama of this because that's what opens up our hearts to learn this main, I think the main point of this passage along the lines of how do Jesus loving people of all, how do Jesus loving people love people in all stages of their growth? I think the main point of this passage is going to simply going to be the simple statement. We want to get stronger in Jesus to build up those weaker in Jesus. That's the main point of this passage, right? If you're like, how do I, like, check out right now or wait till the end? Like, well, that's the main point of the passage, but I promise there's going to be some characters you can get to know so you understand what this is all about. But the main point of this passage is primarily get stronger in Jesus to build up those who are weaker in Jesus. And this passage is whole, because we're talking about, like, who are the weak? I don't know if you're reading through this, you're like, okay, who, there's these weak people we got to learn about. Who are they? There's these strong people. Who are the strong? What does that mean to be strong in Jesus? Who are these strong people? Um, there's obviously some problems going on. And how we learn from that. This, actually, that very structure, that very kind of dynamic, also happens in the book of Romans, right? Romans 14. So this is actually pretty universal for the church to have to work through this, right? You've got a church um, steeped in uh, pagan idolatry where they're sacrificing meats to idols, and they're having to learn this reality. What does it look like to walk alongside people in all stages of their growth in Jesus? And you've got a church in Rome that was primarily Jewish and heavily um, Jewish by culture, and they're having to learn the same dynamic. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to ask a few questions, and we're going to kind of move along this passage to figure out who the main characters are, and then we'll pick up with the drama. So first question is, who are the strong? Who are the strong in this passage? We're going to primarily look at verses 4 through 6, but I want to read the verses verses 1 through 6 just to give us some context, because who are the strong in this passage? Because it's not clear at, at first glance. It's like, are they like... Are they, are they beefcakes, right? Do they get like strongest dad of the year cards on Father's Day? You know, like those sort of things. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And here we're going to focus on these verses. Therefore, as to, eat, as to the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. All right, so who, who's in view here with the strong? This is the passage. These are kind of like... The idea, this is who, these are the strong people that are like going on, that are the main character in this passage. The interesting thing is that Paul identifies with the strong. If you notice that right there, verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know, right? This is not you know, you strong people who I'm now going to beat up on. It's actually Paul identifies. He's a part of the strong group. So that at first glance, like if, if you've ever kind of like worked through this issue, like at first that kind of like hits you like right at the ankles, you're a little bit stumbling like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought typically as we work through the book of First Corinthians, Paul's got like two or three groups of people in mind and he sucker punches all of them right in the face. But here, Paul is identifying with the strong. He is one of them. He's identifying, I'm one of the strong. We know we are strong. This is what is a strong, what does it mean to be strong, right? If you notice, what does he say here? Verse 6, but yet for us, there is one God, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Right, he is, and he's just said here, verse 40 of chapter 7, right above, and I think I too have the Spirit of God, right? If you're ever wondering, what is the Trinity and where do we find in the Bible? Again, here's one of those things. Here's what it means to be strong, to know the basic fundamental truths of the Bible, to know the basic fundamental truths of the gospel. God the Father created all things, and he created all things and loves it. And he sent his son to die and redeem all broken things in the world. And he sent his spirit, he gives his spirit to help all broken things be made new in Jesus. Right? That's what he's talking about in this passage. Right? Because in contrast to that, you have the polytheistic worldview of the time. Right? Polytheism is basically, there's all these different gods, they're all jiving. They, you know, if you think Jersey Shore is like a dramatic moment on TV or uh, The Bachelor right, or any of those things, Right, they're all like vying for attention, right? Polytheist, uh, polytheism. Those guys, they uh, they are the original, they are the OGs of uh, dramatic at, uh, attention grabbers, right? They are trying to get attention. They're all gods, and they're all trying to get our worship. And yet, the strong, those who are strong in Jesus, strong in God, know no. That is all a bunch of hooey. There's one God, and He's one God in three persons. And he loves us and cares for us. But did you notice this right here, verse 6? We, we kind of passed over it. Yet for us, right, again, this is Paul identifying as a strong. There is one God, the Father, 
from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. For whom we exist. Right? This is not just that God exists, but that he has a specific purpose for why you exist, and you exist for him. Right? The classic uh, Westminster Confession, a bunch of guys who wore wigs in the 1600s and uh, got paid by Parliament to write about who, what the Bible says, they wrote this, basic, this very famous statement. What is the chief end of man? Why do we exist? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what this passage is saying, right? The strong know why they exist, who created them, and what they exist for, right? What we're talking about here is basic Christian discipleship, right? right? As a Christian, you should know what is, why did God save you and who did he save you for, right? Here again, you have the Father who creates all things, and then you have Jesus at the end of the verse who is redeeming all things, right? It, Paul has this amazing way of, of basically kind of summarizing all of biblical truth in one verse, and that's what he's doing here, right? We are all given this purpose, and so the strong are the people who know this. The strong are people who know their Bibles, who know their Jesus, and like it, right? They, they know, that they know right? And I'm not saying, like, strong are the people who've read all of their systematic theologies, right? That's not what we're saying, right? I'm just saying the stronger people who know their Bibles and like what it says about who God is. So here's a, here's a definition where we're kind of moving along. I think I have a slide for this. Who are the strong People who know the full, glorious truths of the gospel and apply them throughout their lives. Right? That's what it means to be strong. Right? That's why Paul identifies with that category because that, there's nothing wrong with that category, is there? Right? To be strong is to know your Bibles, to know Jesus, and have applied it in our lives. Like that's, that's what we want. If you're exploring Jesus and loving Jesus together, that's why we have our catechism class in the spring and in the fall and the winter. Right, because we want to know what our Bibles say. We want to know who God is. And we want to apply it in our lives. So that's who the strong are as we're working through this passage. And we want to be people who are strong. That's where Paul's going to land us. So, so don't disregard the strong. But there's another category. And it's not a shameful category. It's just a reality category. Who are the weak? We're just going to move on here. We're going to pick up here in, chapter, in verse 7. Verses 7 through 9, who are the weak in this story? The weak, let's read verse 7 to 9. However, not all possess this knowledge. Right? So here he's saying, right, not all possess this knowledge of, a, of just kind of basic Christian discipleship, full kind of knowing your Bibles, applying the Bible to your life. Not all possess that knowledge. But some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So, did you pick up on that phrase? Verse 7, but some through former association with idols. Right? That phrase, do you hear the conversion, the mission of God in that phrase? There were some who used to do something with all these idols, and now they are not doing that anymore. They used to be associated with all these gods and false pagan realities, 
and now they don't, they don't go there anymore. They're, that's not who they are. They've been changed, right? You, you see, underlying all of the book of 1 Corinthians is still this missionary impulse of God that God is seeking and saving the lost. He's pulling them out of darkness and putting them in his family. They are people who were formerly associated with idols, right? That is, that, that's, that's a part of what the weak is. When you're converted, you're weak in Jesus to begin with, right? Your, your emotions are all like, yay, Jesus! But your head knowledge and how do you do this and what does it mean to, to live my life with Jesus, you're just kind of like, I mean, it's just like a baby, right? I mean, when a human baby's born, <laughs> I mean, it's like the weakest entity on the planet, right? I mean, like they can't stand, they can't pay their taxes. I mean, they can't pay for any of their expenses in the house. They make a lot of noise. They're like the worst roommate ever, right? You know, <laughs> that's kind of like the weak, except... If you're in Jesus, we're really happy that you're here. <laughs> we're not complaining that you're the worst roommate ever. But you hear the mission of God in this, right? This is back in verse 3. But anyone who loves God, anyone who's been born anew in Jesus, he is known by God. There's a, there's a previous love that happened before we love God. And that's the love that pursued us and led them out of their idolatry. But So what's going on here with this idol's and meet and worship, right? So at the time, here's what was going on. Let's give some context to this. At the time, they didn't have restaurants. They didn't have anything like that, right? They didn't have their, you know, this might have been in uh, Italy or wherever, right? They didn't have Italian restaurants in Italy back in Corinth and, you know, whatever. Or Greek restaurants, right? Sorry. Getting my geography all wrong. If you get your geography all wrong, it's okay. I get my geography wrong too. They didn't have any restaurants, but they did have basically the prevailing cultural religion of the time was basically we are going to like all come together, one big family, one big city, and we're going to appeal to the gods to help us. And so they would come together and they would bring their meats and their foods and their grains and all that stuff. They would pile it together. They would offer it as a sacrifice to the gods. And then they would say, the gods are now dwelling at our table. They sit here at this table with us and they provided this food for us. So it was, it was a cultural, social thing, right? Everybody did it. Everybody was a part of it. And it was the way you got your food. It was the way you made connections. It was the way you might have met your future spouse or gotten babysitting. It was the way you kind of ran the deals with doing, with doing business. It was a, 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 an essential part of what it meant to be a part of the community, right? But the, for the, the central part is that the food offered to the idols or the, the gods were actually thought to be presently there, Right? So, like, whenever we have our Super Bowl parties coming up this next February, Bill Belichick, in spirit, will be with us at those parties, right? Kind of that idea. So, to partake in those meals, people who have come out of them, they're struggling. Wait, so, you, so let's say Jacob the pastor goes and sits at these tables to have a meal with all these people. I know that all of this gods and lords stuff is totally bunk, but my friends still are kind of like, they're, they're kind of triggered, right? They're kind of like associations like, wait, wait, how can you do that? How can you go back to those gods? Because you're saying Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And here you're going back to these pagan tables and you're saying Jesus plus maybe a little bit of some help from Zeus, you know? I get in my provision in life. That's how it feels, right? So that's what he's saying here back in verse um, 5. Did you, we kind of passed over this. For although there, are no, there, there may be some so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there, may, there are many gods and many lords. I don't know if you in your Bibles, you've got like quotation marks, right? The, the air quotes, right? What's going on there is he, how could he say, there's no gods and there's no lords, and yet 
Indeed, there are some lords and there are some gods. I think in that second statement when he says there, as indeed there are many gods and many gods and many lords, he's talking about the emotional, still kind of under-the-surface connection that there is between those who have come out of idolatry and paganism. But they still kind of feel it, right? They've gotten, in the groove, they've gotten that groove in their hearts. There's an emotional response, and it's just hard to kick it. Right? There, there's, there's something there that's just deep and ingrained. And yeah, we know there's no gods, there's no lords. But come on, like there's still a sense in our hearts that there's something that's just a struggle there. There's an association, right? So th- there's a bit of a, a, a dynamic where, yes, there, there's no other gods, there's no other lords, there's one god, there's one lord. That's Christian orthodoxy. But in terms of our hearts, we often feel the pull of our former associations, right? We often feel the emotional attachment that we had with former ways of rejecting God, right? It's a bit of like how anybody who's been through any sort of trauma experience, any sort of traumatic experience, whatever it's been, you might be in like a, in a context, for example, like with our friends who struggle with PTSD, right? They struggle with these, these horrific moments in war. They come home and they're out in the mall and then all the feet on the floor, the kids making noise, bam, they're right back in that traumatic moment where they're in war. It's kind of like that, right? When, when you go and sit in a, in a context, you sit down at that table, you're, you're causing your friend to go back and remember what it was like to live in those days. So we're going to keep moving on here. Who are the weak? The weak are people who are fruit of gospel advance. Right? Can we put that up here? The weak are people who are the fruit of gospel advance, who need to grow in Jesus, who need to grow in the need of gospel application. Right? That's, that's who the weak are. And do you notice? There's nothing wrong with that category. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being like, I don't know. I need help. That's this category, right? People who don't know how to apply the gospel to their lives but they want to, right? So what's the problem? We kind of touched on this a little bit. We're going to go back into it. Verses 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, quote-unquote, puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So here's what was going on, right? So you have what's going on is this knowledge, right? The, the people who are strong, and they were misapplying their gospel knowledge, right? They were, their knowledge had not led to love, right? Because that's the purpose, right? That's where we're getting this whole dynamic, getting stronger to build up those who are weak in Jesus, right? Do you see this? Let's see. I've lost my track here. There it is. Verse 2. Verse 1. This, love puffs, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Right? The strong were basically strong-arming their rights. They were saying, I'm going to do life in my own way, and don't you tell me how to do it. Oh, and by the way, my way is better, so why don't you come and join me? Right? That's kind of how they were doing it. Um, and if you have a problem with it, that's your problem. So these guys really were basically like old school New Englanders, right? They just like, you can't tell me what to do. Don't tell me. Don't infringe on my rights. Live free or die, for heaven's sake. If, it's, if you got a problem with it, then it's your problem. But by the way, my way is better, and you should do it my way. So here we pick up here in verses 10 through 12, because you see that they did not know as they ought to know. If they had known a certain way, 
they would have done things differently. And that's what we're going to be getting to after this. But 10 through 12. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating at an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So Paul raises the stakes, right? It's not just a conflict issue between us where, well, we can agree to disagree. There is a sinning against Christ, a destroying of our brother. What's going on here is the strong were enforcing their gospel knowledge without a gospel heart, inflicting serious damage and sin against Christ because they were not loving their weaker brother. Right? How can you say that Christ is enough? The weaker are saying, how can you say that Christ is enough and eat at the table? But here's the, here's the issue. Right? They were basically saying, yeah, I know that you've got a, like, this association issue where you're like, feeling like you're actually sitting down with Zeus at the table and eating but he doesn't really exist. But even still, you've got to come and do that with me. So he, they were leading people back into a situation that God had saved them from with all these associations. They didn't have the strength to resist the temptations there and were probably being led back into sin, right? So they were probably being led back into all the pagan worship practices, you know, temple prostitutes and all these crazy oaths and all that stuff to false gods, they were probably being led back into the things that God had saved them out of. And the strong were doing that just so that they could get a good carnivore dinner. <laughs> I mean, just, just put it in perspective, right? They were getting those people all back into the, all their old former ways, struggling with their former temptations, all just so that they could get a cheap meal. Right? That's what's going on here. And frankly, we're going to kind of step back here and say, this is a cultural issue that they were facing because clearly we don't have meat sacrificed to idols now. But in Romans 14, it's interesting because the tables are reversed in Romans 14, right? So in Corinth, who was it that was struggling? It was the prevailing cultural people of the prevailing culture that were struggling with the minority culture, right? So the strong were the people who were the minority culture that they'd gotten the gospel. So they were the Jews. They were like, look, you guys are crazy. There's no, not many gods. You don't have to worry about this. It's not a big deal. The prevailing culture is all these, these polytheists who are like, oh, there's all these gods, and we used to worship them. And in Rome, it was the reverse. In Rome, it was all the Jews that were all kind of like out of whack. They're like, wait, you can't, you guys aren't celebrating Jewish holidays. You guys aren't doing Sabbath the way we do it. You guys aren't doing circumcision the way we used to do it. What? And all the Greeks at the time, all the Gentiles were kind of like, man, all that stuff is bunk. You don't need all that stuff. You just got to have Jesus. So you see how it's a cultural dynamic, one way or the other, because it's a universal issue that we all face. The weak often are those who let the cult, their culture and experiential biases distort gospel application. It's hard. And that's why it's going to be hard to apply this passage. It's going to be hard to figure out what's going on. But let me just speak to one issue before we move on to how we change. Often this passage is used to say, for example, um, uh, you shouldn't drink alcohol because drinking alcohol is uh, dangerous for some people, and therefore you shouldn't do it at all. That's like a universal prohibition. Like they're saying, like the weak struggle with it, it's offensive to them for whatever reason. 
my father was an alcoholic, not my father personally, but just general. Father was an alcoholic. He beat our family. Alcohol has bad associations for me. And if you drink alcohol, you're offending me. But you see, the point of this passage is not if you're offended by something, therefore the strong don't do it. The point of this passage is those who are weak, if they were to continue, if they were to follow along with the convictions of the strong, they would be led into harmful, self-damaging practices, right? right? The issue is not of offending someone in the church. It has to do with the conduct of another that if a weaker brother were to emulate it, it would be damaging and hurtful for them. So that's the category here, right? And did you notice that the way that they overcome that, and we're going to start getting into that here, is not by saying, oh, okay, right, right, so none of us will ever... It's actually to say, well, let me, let's enter into that and understand what's going on with those struggles. So what's the problem here? Enforcing strength for your own desires, for your own convictions over the growth of another. What's the, that's the issue. That's the problem, right? Enforcing your strength. Do we have a slide for that? Stronger Christians leading or demanding harmful emulation, right? I don't, not emulation, emulation. Emulation would be setting yourself on fire. Emulation for their freedoms in weaker Christians. Is that making sense? Are we tracking along here? Okay. So with all that in mind, Here's how the passage closes up, right? This passage is a bit of like a doozy of a passage, and here's how it closes up, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here. How do we change verse 13? Therefore, right, after all of that, Paul comes down to this. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So here is what's going on. Paul is saying, my brother's weaknesses change how I engage with those areas of struggle for him right? How my brother struggles has an impact on my heart and how I want to help him, how I want to live beside him, how I want to support him and, stro- and walk beside him. Okay, so here's where the, the stumbling block, it's kind of like the stumbling block principle, right? Because this is how, what does it mean to put a stumbling block in front of another person? Can we, have, can we pull it? Stumbling block principle, using my strength and gospel application to build up the, quote, weaker thans in gospel application and not leading them to freedoms that cause them harm and their growth in Christ. I could probably figure out how to synthesize that down a little bit more, but I'd probably need more than a week to preach a sermon, you know? So give me a little bit of some grace here. But basically, stumbling block principle is using gospel application to build up, using my strengths and who I know Jesus to be and how he's changed and shaped my life how he's made me new in him and renewed my mind and heart, how he's redeemed me, using all of what he's done in me to come under and alongside my brothers and sisters who are having struggles in their associations, emotional or real-life situations, to understand, support, walk beside them. Because right, if verse 3 is true... If anyone loves God, he is known by God. We are all the weaker thans. We are all weaker than somebody else. We are all weaker than Jesus. And yet he comes alongside and comes alongside and cares for us. And again, I just want to pull out this missionary dynamic. Weaker people in Jesus will grow stronger. But the reason this is important for us, this principle, this is what Paul lands on, is because as God saves and renews people, we will always have people who are weak in Jesus among us, right? Right? 
Just like, just like, like we're always going to have babies, right? There's always just going to be babies that happen, right? We're always going to have people who are coming to Jesus, coming to new in him, trying to figure out their life in him because God's at work and he's saving people to make them new in Jesus. So we're always going to have to be thinking about this. We want to use our strength to serve. And the strong were often the cultural minority in the church. They had the advantage of distance from the culture to see gospel issues. But in Corinth, they took the other side of the cultural bait and did a knowledge power play on the others. Right? So this is important for us because culture can blind us to how we apply the gospel in our lives. Right? We, can, we can really get caught up in our cultural dynamics and how we think things should be or they ought to be well, now that we're a Christian, those things are just kind of like, well, obvious. So I just want to say, as I've been trying to apply this passage, I've really struggled. It's like, you remember that story I said a few months, like a, maybe a month or two ago, right? You've got one salmon, an older salmon swimming down the river, and he passes two, two younger salmon going the other way. He says, how's the water, boys? And about you know, a few yards later, the younger salmon turns to the other salmon, and he says, what's water? Right? That's kind of how these issues feel. Like, it's just hard to see them. So how do we apply this? Well, frankly, the strong and weak need each other because the weak are going to see issues in gospel application that the strong need. And the strong are going to have the gospel application that the weak need. So I want to suggest five areas of how to grow in this stuff, how to apply this to our lives, how do we change with this passage shaping us. And I want to just say, we're going to apply this in the sense of how do we grow to be stronger people in Jesus who serve the weaker to become stronger in Jesus? Because we have to kind of, we have to kind of lift out that part of like the, the pagan idol meat stuff and kind of get what's going on in this passage for our application. So the first one, five areas to consider the addiction world and growth in Christ. The addiction world and growth in Christ. So... Here is, as I, I've never been uh, addicted to substances. My fam- members of my family have. Multiple of my neighbors and friends have. I have multiple friends and neighbors here who have. And I think, to me, this is one of the clearest applications, right? Our friends who have struggled with substance abuse, they may struggle. If you are free in your conscience to drink alcohol, or for example... It may be a struggle for them who used to hurt themselves with alcohol, right? And frankly, this is why whenever I have a friend who, I've, you know, they're an alcoholic in recovery, I've always asked them. Like even this last week, I had lunch with Keith from the Hope Center. I said, Keith, does it bother you that I'm the pastor of the church that meets in the Hope Center and that I'll have a beer every once in a while? He's like, doesn't bother me at all. I am a little jealous that you can enjoy that gift, right? So, but I always ask because I don't want it to become an issue or a struggle for them. Right? We, want to, we want to understand that these things are ways that we drastically damage ourselves and our friends have damaged themselves and they are finding help and hope in Jesus and it may not be helpful for them to do a Bible study at a bar. <laughs> you know, like let's not do an AA meeting at a bar. But another category along the lines of sexual addiction and struggles is sexual struggles and issues, Right? We live in a, in a world where there are multiple, multiple TV shows, for examples, and movies that are regularly celebrating pornographic images and those dynamics that, for our friends, that are coming out of an addiction to pornography. 
for you to say, I watched this show without any hesitations about this, the stuff that's in there that has caused them to give in to their sexual struggles, that may not be helpful for them, right? It, it may be something where you need to figure out, do I need to be watching this show for the sake of my brother? See, am I starting to get a little, like, like there's some hesitations going on right here where you're kind of like, oh, you're getting into my entertainment time. Like, yeah, because maybe you need to reconsider how that use of your freedoms, you can watch that show, man, I'm not going to tell you not to watch it. But is watching that show and then talking about and celebrating with your friends who may struggle with those dynamics helpful for them, right? That's where this passage begins to, uh, to, to hit home, right? And by the way, this is, um, I'm just going to put a little pin right here. This talks, this, is, this, this engages the whole category of should Christians smoke weed? We're going to do a sermon on this later in the fall. You can look forward to that sermon. But I'm just saying this category of the cultural associations with things and how does it serve or hinder my brother's growth in Jesus, we're just going to put a pin in that. That does influence how we think about whether Christians should smoke weed because, by the way, by the time of the fall, I'm sure that it'll be legalized, and so we've got to think about it. Second thing we need to think about, regularly work to get gospel culture deeper than ingrained culture, right? Every form of Christianity, New England, the South, the Northwest, Europe, South America, even Antarctica, I imagine, has a form of, cultural, of, of Christianity that is culturally adapted in some extent, right? We in, in New England, when we engage, for example, when we engage our brothers and sisters from basically the, the rest of the global world, but specifically like Africa or Asia, where they have a very like communal dynamic to their faith, right? There's a very communal, a heavy communal dynamic. Our our individualistic instincts are just kind of like out the roof. We're like, you can't tell me who to marry. You can't, you know, force me to take my mom into my house to care for her forever. You know, you can't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And our cultural friends who are more strong on uh, the culture, the uh, family and authority within the community, they're like, you guys are all selfish. <laughs> you guys are all just all about yourself and self-glorifying, Right? And maybe there's a bit of truth in both. But more deeply, we need, to get, we need to regularly work to get gospel culture more deeply ingrained in our hearts. As we understand the gospel moves more, um, as our understanding of the gospel moves more deeply in the foundation of our identity, we find ourselves less and less shaken by professional, social, and relational changes, less driven by professional success, more open-minded about political differences, and more easily able to overcome racial prejudices. Ask, how does this hesitation that I experience in whatever moment you're talking about come from gospel or my culture, right? We bring up the category of weed, for example. We just talked on it. Your hesitations or struggles or affirmations, do they come from the Bible and the culture of the gospel, or do they come from your culture and your neighborhood? Right? I'm not saying ones that you should automatically make a decision on it, but that's, those are the types of questions. Work regularly to get the gospel culture deep, more deeply ingrained than our innate culture. Third thing, do not be too quick to deny the existence of prejudice in your life. We all have expectations about how others should be Christians, right? Whether it's blue collar or white collar, whether it's introverted, extroverted, whether it's educated or simple, 
whether it's how you dress or the language you use, whether it's the music you listen to, whether it's the way you show up to church, how you show up to church, how you go to church, all those things, we all have expectations on those things. And we all innately just kind of begin to judge other people who don't live up to our expectations. It could be class, it could be uh, race, it could be any of those issues. And we need to, this passage is basically saying, out of the gate, start with humility, right? Which means we're just going to come in with some built-in prejudices that we've got to overcome. And that doesn't mean that you are a lesser person, but it does mean that we need to recognize and resist the tendency to stick with those who are like us, culturally, personally, whatever. And I just want to say, as a, as a bit of, as a plea for us, as a plea for you if, you, if you're exploring Jesus here, if you are trying to figure out who he is and you have felt judged, or if you have felt put down on less than, other than, excluded for any reason, if you have felt looked down on or talked about in any way, I, I would like for you to tell me because I want to ask you to forgive us. Because that matters to me, that you are welcomed into this place, that you are welcome to be a part of Jesus. And if there are any prejudices that you have felt imposed on you, I just want to say, I'm sorry. And I want to ask you to tell me so that we, I can repent and ask your forgiveness personally, okay? Fourth thing we want to do, ask the Spirit to guide you towards others for discipleship friendships. Right, did you notice that all through, this, all through this chapter, the path of changing from weak to strong is from learning the gospel, applying it thoroughly to our lives, right? <laughs> right? Pursuing other people, being alongside, right? It's not that the strong shouldn't have hung out with the weak, right? It was just that the, the strongs in this passage were taking the weak to a place that were going to damage them, right? But actually, Paul's just saying, if you're strong in Jesus, get together with the weak and then help them grow in these basic biblical truths of who God is and what he's shown us in the gospel, right? That's, that is, that is the, the path of this passage, right? The path of growth for the weak was compassionate, empathetic discipleship with robust orthodoxy, right? We love our Bibles and we want to know what they mean. And we want to understand how our friends who are weak or new in Jesus or exploring Jesus, what they're experiencing how we can come alongside them. Fifth thing, how are you striving to get stronger in Jesus this summer? Right? If you notice, the point is that Paul identifies with being strong and we want to become strong. We want to grow in Jesus. How are you going to be going to grow in Jesus? Reading a book, going to missional community? I'd love to talk with you about that. And let me just, I just, I, I didn't put this in the slides, but I just want to, I'm going to throw this in there as a sixth thing. You do not need to fix yourself before you start with Jesus. Right? Did you notice? These weak have got all these issues jacking up their hearts. The strong have got all these issues jacking up their minds and how they care for the weak. They're all still a part of the family of Jesus. And none of them were excluded from starting with Jesus. You, you don't have to fix yourself before you come to Jesus. You don't have to get yourself all, all polished out. You don't have any struggles, hang-ups, hiccups, whatever. You can start with Jesus. 
and get to get stronger in him. Have your heart and mind renewed in him. Have your sins forgiven and covered over by him. Welcomed into the Father's family by him. Becoming a new creature, what we just sang about, in him. Become, not only go from being weak to mediocre, but being from mediocre to strong in Jesus. And then be used by him to glorify his name and then to turn around and help others grow alongside you. That's what Jesus is wanting to do in you. Right? God loves weak people. And he wants us, this passage, I think, to get stronger in Jesus, to build up those who are weaker in Jesus. I pray, King's Cross, that this is not only familiar for us as a community, this sounds familiar, like, oh yeah, this is kind of a bit like who we are, but I pray that we become this more and more. You see, this is how God is going to save and renew and redeem many in our city to make his name great. I pray that we would get stronger in Jesus to build up those who are weaker in Jesus. So let's pray. Let's pray for that. Father, I pray, I pray that you would help us. I pray that we who are weak or who have in any way caused those who are weak among us to stumble, I pray that you would help us to serve those that you love, us, our neighbors, our friends, to grow in Jesus. And I pray this because Jesus is our strength and he loves us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.